Tune in to episode 120 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. Sometimes Fish fans get a bit myopic. They can tell you statistics, facts, numbers setless, any sort of weird statistic under the sun, kind of like a baseball nerd. He goes to baseball reference. He's got his baseball cards. He can call up. He knows exactly where he was when so-and-so hit that home run and what he was doing. Fish fans are the same way, and we love him for it. But they got to listen to other music, and that's kind of what we're trying to do with this podcast for 120 episodes. My goodness. They really do. You know, the best ones do. I think that that's one thing that, like, we may have not hammered home enough in 120 and counting Beyond the Pond episodes, but the best ones out there, the best fish fans, listen to non-fish. And then they listen to fish. You know why? Yeah. Because non-fish complements fish. It opens your mind up. It stretches it. It exercises the brain. It forces you to be challenged and to think and hear other types of music and hear different kinds of songwriting and different influences. And then you go back to fish and you're like, A, this is motherfucking comforting as shit. And B, I'm now learning and hearing all these new sounds and styles and ideas in fish. It's an amazing thing. So we want to applaud the best of you, the rest of you, Got to get off the myopia high horse. I know that you think it's a high horse. It's not. But you got to get off of it. And you got to start listening to other music. That's what we're here for. That's our goal, right? If fish is a delicious French baguette hot out of the oven, and other bands are the delicious blue cheese that you spread all over that baguette. The baguette is fine up on its own. Add the blue cheese. Passport to heaven. And to your point, which I will always uh, embrace a cheese analogy when we're talking about fish, you don't want to just take a bite out of that blue cheese. You want to have something crispy and crunchy underneath it, something a little simpler to soak up all that funk and give you a really nice mouthfeel, a nice flavor town experience. Shout out to my man from Triple D. We are here. (laughs) We are here (laughs) in episode 120 to talk through some incredible fish and some incredible other music. But you already knew that. What are we talking through? Well, we are right now a month exactly as of recording, not when you're listening, but as of recording, we are exactly one month since the conclusion of Fish's 2023 spring tour, a tour that Dave and I loved in the moment, a tour that I'm guessing a lot of you loved in the moment, and a tour that we have returned to multiple times in one-off jam re-listens, one-off set re-listens, which to me is always the sign, that combination of excitement and then how much fish I listen to in the weeks after a tour. That's always how I feel like Fish played a really good tour. And Fish played an excellent, excellent tour. 
uh, run, if you will. But, you know, we'll give it a tour because there was a lot of music in there. We're going to talk about that. We are going to combine it with another tour that we think has a lot of similarities to this, which is Winter 2003. We're going to talk about those two tours, talk about their similarities, talk about where Fish was at at their point in the career at these two diverging moments in their overall history. And then we're going to dive into some music that we have been listening to and living in for probably the last three or four years um, and has really become, in a lot of cases, our obsessions outside of the world of fish. We're going to go through our favorite jazz records that have come out in the 2020s. Action-packed episode here. Really, really excited about this. These are some actual like recent jazz records, not um, as opposed to you know the classic... 50s and 60s, 70s jazz records that we all love. Plenty of new and interesting stuff going on in the world of jazz. So, but before we get there, some of the the themes you can expect to hear in this episode include the ephemeral nature of inspiration, spring touring versus summer slash fall touring, and wild and abstract jamming. So, before we get to the fish, uh, in lieu of a mailbag, because you guys seem to refuse to send this stuff, Seriously, we'll talk about it, but there hasn't been much to come as of late. We're just going to do a, a quick check-in on our two favorite fish uh, non-jam bands, the Youngins. These being uh, other bands that we talked about in this show being entailing Goose and Eggy, both of my boys from Southern Connecticut, so both of which have... Uh, had spring tours. I think Goose uh, kind of recently concluded spring tour, and Eggy is uh, in full swing with their uh, their spring tour currently. So, what are we thinking about this? So it's been awesome to watch both of these bands uh, continue to evolve and continue to grow. Um, Goose is at a point in their career where they have they've made it a lot easier for you to access their music in the moment. They did a full free Nugs Net. Uh, to subscribers, free Nugs Net stream of every single show of their spring tour, which was the first time I sat down and did an entire Goose Tour uh, stream. I'd usually kind of dipped in and out and checked here and there um, throughout the tour. Really fun, um, amazing shows, I would say, from a musical standpoint. You know, we heard a lot of uh, exploration, kind of risk-taking and darkness throughout the cap run. Um, we didn't get as much of that here throughout the spring run. It was kind of like the, uh, I would compare it almost to like the fall tour from last year, but really blown out where like, um, pretty straightforward rocking, really groove heavy, uh, riff jamming, but blown out to 25, 30, even in some cases, 44 minute jams. They played their longest jam ever on this tour. Um, really good set list flow throughout most of it. There were a couple of shows, uh, specifically the Madison show from 413, Seattle from 422, uh, Nashville's first and third night, 330 and 4-1, um, as well as the Athens show from 328 that really stuck out to me as just like a good sampling of where Goose is at right now at their peak um, and, and, and shows that contained complete segments of music that I've gone back and listened to. What were your thoughts on their tour? I just keep coming back to the word I think about Goose, considering how they're reasonably young. They're very professional. It's just like such a professional band that they were able to live stream all of these shows for free if you're a Nug subscriber. 
So all the live streams, whenever like the soundboards come out on Nugs, they sound very good, very well mixed. Everything is very well done, and it makes it kind of fun yeah. and easy to listen to just because outside of the performances, they just sound, it's a very full, crisp sound that sounds very good in my headphones and listen to them on Nugs. Um, yeah, all the shows that you mentioned were good. I also like, um, it was April 28th from San Francisco, which I think was recently released in full by them on YouTube. So you can check that one out. But yeah, everyone was talking about, I guess, the 44-minute Echo of a Rose from Seattle, which was a show that was mocked by, um, marked by strange issues with the PA, where in set one they had to leave for, I think, 20 minutes at a time because the PA blew out, and then it happened again. And I think when they finally came back to tell the audience, like, well, all right, you stuck with us, so here's a 44-minute version of one of our best songs. But it was great. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, excellent. It was great, and the, the the show flowed really nicely. It opened with Danger Zone. It was just – it was a killer – it was one of those things that – um you know, in the nineties, you would have gotten this with fish. If there was any sort of venue issue or if it was undersold, if there were problems, um, you know, with the load in or with, with, with fans getting into the venue, they would really, um, reward people with like a full set of just outstanding music. And you really got that. Yeah. I mean, it was an excellent tour, lots of highlights. I think probably the version of the song Wisteria Lane they played in Nashville might've been, that sticks out to me as being one of the top three jams of the tour, in addition to the Echo of the Rose from Seattle. I mean, for me, with Goose, I think at this point, they're going to have a lot of fans. They appeal to a lot of people. They're like good-looking, stout guys who write very good songs and play very well. Whether they'll always hold my attention, or they can, to me, get to the next step depends on whether or not the other members of the band that aren't Rick can find ways to keep things interesting because sometimes the guitarist is so talented that sometimes they just fall back on Rick losing his mind on stage and kind of everybody else falls in lockstep. So if they can manage to find a way to really incorporate the rhythm section, incorporate the drums, maybe tune, uh, take Pete's keyboards, turn them up in the mix a bit, because he's become a much better keyboard player than he was even two years ago. You can't always hear it. But, um, yeah, I mean, they're goose. I'm on board. You're on board. Let's see where it goes. Yeah, and I think that the point you made is is really... Um it's, it's, it's really intuitive. It, it, they are at a point in their development where it makes the most sense to lock in on right. what works and what works is Rick's guitar. Um, I do think the, the, where I got most excited this tour, just like looking at my favorite jams, um, jams like the three, eight drive from the cap theater, which we talked about in an earlier episode, uh, the 324, the March 24th, Echo of a Rose from Philadelphia, the April 25th, Born from Eugene, uh, the April 14th, Hunger Sight from Chicago, and the um, uh, March 31st, mm. Arrow from um, uh, Nashville, as well as the May 2nd, Tumble from New Orleans. Those are all jams that, like, what excited me about those was that you got more Peter or you got 
standout moments from Trevor, or you heard the drums in lockstep with each other and kind of the way that drip field really, um, uh, can be exemplified as a, as a, as a, as a song because of the way that the drums, uh, are, are really, you know, risen up and really showcased there. I found that those were like the best. Just want to stop you for one sec. For those of you in beyond the pile who don't have nugs, I mean, all the shows are on Bandcamp, but if you want to something that was on streaming services, they just released um, the, both of the Chicago shows in the spring, Live at the Saw Shed, that sounded like Apple and Spotify, because you brought out Dripfield, and the Chicago shows had an incredible version of that song. Probably one of the better versions. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, great, great call. And yeah, I mean, just to like close, like I, I think that those jams really showcased full band jamming, which is where, personally, I'm hoping that over the next couple of years they evolve to. Um, I think right now it makes sense to be a very Rick-led band, but I definitely agree with you. That's, I don't want to say that's the one drawback, but it's the one thing that like when they go off tour, I've got to get on a project to, to go back and listen to them. Even though, you know, like when they're on tour, it's all I'm listening to, but when they're off, I'm in new music land. And so there's, there's gotta be something more from those jams to like really, really pull me back. But there is a band that we love that is playing the kind of venues that Goose was playing uh, three, four years ago that we've talked about before here, none other than the Carton themselves, our boys at an Eggy, who have just released Eggie. a bunch of shows on Nugs.net. Um, they don't do the day after release. They don't webcast a ton, so it's a little bit harder to follow their tour right now as immediately as it is goose and fish but they just released a bunch of shows what were your thoughts on the uh, recent eggy shows we had a lot of single set opening shows from earlier in the year these are our first kind of multi-set bigger headlining set shows that we're getting from eggy since about january they've been very good especially one that i really liked was um i think it was in late april at the wonder bar in Asbury Park, New Jersey, it was in April 29th, because I actually saw them at Brooklyn Bowl on April 28th, sandwiched between two jamgrass bands. And I think they got one, like, 75-minute set, which was very good, but it was sandwiched between two jamgrass bands, so they couldn't stretch out in the way that I really would have liked. Um, but yeah, April 29th at Asbury Park, Wonder Bar, solid two-set show. Second set, I think it was only four songs, and started off with their down with disease, their peen to really high end A6 Onixuka Tiger. I think like a 25 minute plus version. Very good. Then a little feet cover. With a waves jam mid- middle of the way through. Yes. Big waves jam, which for some reason wasn't noted on the equivalent of their fish net, which is the carton.net. I should email the administrator and say, hey, there's a waves jam here. Come on, guys. <laughs> Then that set had, uh, they played Little Feet in that set because they probably have all the bands that cover Little Feet. There are many. They're probably the best band at covering Little Feet because the rhythm section is tighter than a bank vault and they're very good at funk and slow tempos. So if you're going to check out an Eggy show, I would recommend that one highly. Yeah, I would second that. That is probably my favorite set that's come out thus far. Um, I would also go for the... Um, Segment of music from May 5th in Asheville, the uh, Shadow in mm. the Chest Fever, Back in the Shadow, uh, 
you talk about them being the, one of the best jam bands to cover Little Feet. I think that that transfers over to their covers of the band, which are um, yes, really are, like their voices where where their voices may still need like some softening out and a little bit of development. I think that they sing the band really well, a, a, a band that notoriously was good at singing, but also like had extremely unique voices when they sang and you knew exactly that it was the band. Eggy's able to nail those vocals in a song like chest fever really well. And the segue from shadow into chest fever and then back into shadow is just really you you can't even see you used to say this about about segways like you can't even see the threads you can't even see uh you know the 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 wiring uh, you, you, like there there's no way to know you can't see the stitching i think is the way you put it like there's no way to know where one song ends and one song begins they just do a really good job of like slinking from one song into another as seamlessly as possible yeah that Asheville show was fun because it was kind of the theme for the evening is we'll start an original and it'll segue into a cover, and it'll segue back into the original. Because I know, I think that was one of the nights they did uh, the King Gizzard cover, Interior People, yeah. wedged it between one of the original songs. Then they have their song Finding and Losing into an Unknown Mortal Orchestra cover, back in the Finding and Losing. So, you know, it was kind of, they were feeling cheeky. And I think it's like one 80-minute set. So they've been playing two set shows or doing just extended first set shows. And that was one of the better versions of an extended first set show. Because they've got a following down south, it seems. They play like a lot of shows in South Carolina, I guess Asheville, North Carolina. So they're, um, I think they're, they should kind of whip it out and play some bigger venues. Because the tiny venues they're playing are almost sold out or close to sold out. I know... The Brooklyn Bull show I saw, even though they were playing with Kitchen Dwellers, uh, it was Brooklyn Bull when they were on. It was near, extremely packed. There was at least like 900 people there. It was uh, if they can do that, the Brooklyn Bull on a Friday night, I think they can at least kind of fill up 500, 600 seat venues pretty easily. So. Reach for the stars, Eggy. Come on. Yeah, they're at that interesting point where it's. I wouldn't be surprised if by this point next year they're taking that leap. Cause when I went and saw them in March, I mean, they, they played for our full venue out here at the Ogden and that's five fifty, six hundred. Right. I want to say, um, just a really solid size venue, really big room. Um, but yeah, I'm waiting for their next, uh, tour dates to come down for coming out here out West. I would imagine they'll be here at least once or twice more before the end of 2023. Um, seen them at like Cervantes, I would imagine at this point in time, but it'd be cool if they could come back and play the Bluebird on their own or play the Ogden on their own. Um, I'm not exactly sure until they start to treat Colorado, you know, uh, to, to multiple shows, multiple runs a year, but it'd be cool to, cool to see that. But, um, I'm, I'm excited for my first full show eggy experience, which I imagine happening at some point before the end of 23. You just got to keep the chains and the tires of their van out in Colorado, <laughs> as you know. That's the key. Treacherous, treacherous. All right. So we've already done an intro. We've talked young jam bands. And now let's get to the fish.
So, as we mentioned at the top here, we're going to dive into spring 2023 and winter 2003. And, you know, I think part of the reason that we both saw similarities between these tours is the jamming in these tours really values abstract playing. It uh, values a lot of risk-taking. You hear a lot of jams that can very quickly go dark and stay very, very dark and get kind of murky and evil, but can also peak really well. And you have jams across, you know, say winter 2003, everything from like the tweezer from Chicago to the Piper from Vegas, the theme from the bottom from Philadelphia, um, and the bathtub gin from Nassau that are all jams that kind of show different tones, different sides of fish. And we got that a lot throughout spring 2023. And we're going to get into a couple of those jams. We have two that we want to focus on specifically, but, um, I want to ask you a couple of questions just about spring 2023, just to set the table here. Um, I think we both agree that this is a very good tour. I think this was the most excited that we had been about fish in about 18 months. Um, I think we both really needed this tour to not necessarily like reset our expectations with the band, but just to like give the reassurance that they can, they still can keep uh, getting to this level. And let me thinking like, how can you personally tell in your own mind when fish is on in a tour versus they're having kind of a challenging tour with some highs, some lows, some middle ground, but not necessarily playing one of the top tier tours of their career. Well, I think there's a level of effortlessness that I saw in spring 2023. It got to the point where you just like turn the shows on and come to expect greatness in the first set. And then it shows up and you're like, all right, these guys are absolutely feeling it. Like, for example, I just even think of the second show, which was a climate pleasure. So the second show, which would be Seattle night two, yeah. the first set, it played a version of Reba, maybe like the most interesting version of the song since uh, Augusta, Maine in 2010, just yeah. like effortless, cool type two Jan right in the middle of that Reba. Excellent Wolfman's brother. Oh, we're in Seattle. All right, let's play a Jimmy Hendrix song. Let's play Isabella. And then that, Set ended with the phenomenal Chalk Dust Torture. I think it was like 15 minutes. It's got a part where a fisherman is shaving beats with wood blocks to make it sound like fish has become the biggest strange cuckoo clock in the world. <laughs> Just like you come to, you start to take the greatness for granted. And just it was uh, interesting and it didn't sound like they were pressing Every time it seemed like there'd be a bit of a lull, they would always lure you back with something interesting. I mean, you know, I mean, if you listen to Beyond the Pond, you're probably aware that we feel that there's good fish shows and not as good fish shows. Never going to say, every fish show is the best fish show, man. (laughs) That is not our vibe. Not our vibe. I mean, yeah, even a bad fish show, I would rather be at a bad fish show than just about... 95% 95% of anything else I could possibly be doing on that evening, yeah. other than a really good Mets game, perhaps. Right, right. But, you know, it was um, after the first show, the Seattle show, they reeled off that incredible wave of hope in the second set. I thought, okay, we could be on to something really good here. And I look forward to these shows just because night after night, they found something interesting and inventive, and it was clear that they were having a blast on stage. 
aided in part by the fact that really excellent webcast mix, which carried over from Mexico. I think they had Vance Powell uh, on this tour. So, guy knows how to make, knows how to mix Mike and Fish, man. Yeah, 100% on the mix. That was one of the underrated and great aspects of this. And, you know, there's a subtle connection there to 2003, the winter tour. That was the first tour where every single show we got as a soundboard recording the next day. And so there's something about when the technology is really working, where you're able to, um, uh, experience this, 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 you know, this band in real time. And 20 years later, not only are we still getting the soundboard recordings now, usually at midnight, um, right after the show ends, but we're also getting in this really high quality, pristine sound quality, um, which is not without its controversies. As you might recall, the first night of the Greek <laughs> did not appear on streaming services for at least a week. And people were in panic. People were in uproar. What is going on? Where is my 44 minute tweezer? My 20 minute simple? I need this. The most desired show at all of 4.0. <laughs> but gone missing. But I, I definitely. I mean, a couple of things that you said that I, I, I really relate to, um, you know, part of the reason this podcast works, part of the reason we're close friends and we, we talk about fish endless, endlessly is I think we see it this in similar ways, this, this idea that I like honesty and I like discussing things in a critical fashion. And I think that that for me makes the experience of listening to my favorite bands and consuming my favorite music and watching my favorite sports teams better because, and this is just me personally, I like talking about when things aren't working and trying to understand why they're not working. When they are working, like they worked on this tour, there's almost less to talk about because you're just really, really happy. Um, and you're, you're just like, you know, in kind of a bliss zone that like this thing that you love is just working really well. But I do think, you know, for me, the moment where it seemed clear that this band was playing a really good tour was on the second night of the Greek, because that is the show that in any normal tour, it's a throwaway gig. You just play this huge second set the night before, just come out, play a bunch of songs. Don't really like take a lot of chances. Don't take a lot of risk. Instead, they come out and they open up with Olivia's Pool, Seven Below Maze, very, very strange opening trio that totally works. Mountains in the Mist is our first set ballad. 23-minute bathtub gin into a cool 555 and a possum to close out the set. It's a great first set. But then you come on for set two and you play this third quarter segment of music, Don't Doubt Me, Kill Devil Falls, Fuego, Light, Lonely Trip. Number one, six years ago, nobody's writing that set list down because these are all like mm. new random songs that like aren't going to be featured back to back to back. They're not going to play that much new music in a row. But number two, all these jams go in really weird, interesting places. And for me, for, for that show to happen the night after the tweezer simple, it really gave this indication that to your point, this band is feeling effortless. They're feeling on it's easy right now. And that just spilled over into the final weekend. Um, was it the Fuego? I think I'm trying to think. One of no, it was in Don't Doubt Me. Towards the end of Don't Doubt Me, there was a bunch of keyboard sounds that reminded me a heck of a lot of uh, the keyboards that go all throughout the King Gizzard record, Butterfly Three Thousand, which is built off of this, I think, one MIDI keyboard theme that they pass back and forth during the pandemic that kind of crops up in all the songs. Yeah. 
And I heard it, and I said, oh, all right, I don't think that's by accident. Maybe it is. Maybe Paige is on the, maybe Paige is on the King Gizzard train now. But, yeah, my goodness, that first set, the 23-minute bathtub gin, followed by probably the best 555 ever. Yeah, yeah, that one or Atlantic City yeah. last year or um, Atlantic City 2013. Those are all, those are kind of the only versions yeah. that really count. Yeah, that show, you're right, that was... They could have done a throwaway show. Would have been completely happy after the prior night, probably arguably playing the best second set in all of four let alone the past six or seven years. But yeah, I will say one other thing that that makes me think that this was a really good tour and, and thought about it in the moment was you and I were supposed to record on April nineteenth, and we ultimately made a game time decision. Let's put this off for a week because we got a really good fish show that could potentially happen tonight. And we should really dedicate our time to that. And that was the third night of the Greek, which um, I don't think was the best show of the run, but it had a really cool, it had great. great moments. Big ACDC bag, big runaway gym, awesome beneath the sea of stars, amazing set your soul free. More on that later. Um, where does this tour for you, where does spring 2023 land for you in terms of 3.0, 4.0 best of tours? It kind of reminded me a lot of fall 2018, just in the sense that really excellent, exciting jamming, the kind of the band was feeling itself. And I think that, I mean, fall 2018, other than the fact that they didn't come to the East Coast, is one of uh, my favorite tours of recent vintage, because I will always prefer fall fish to summer fish and spring fish. Mm-hmm. And they just, uh, they ruled out some... Extremely good shows in fall 2018. I think, what is it, October 26, 20, whatever. I think it was October 26th, or the first night of Chicago oh, yeah. always comes to mind, which was like the first jammed at Mercury, Moon Age Daydream. I was at a Nick Cave show that night, so I was not watching Fish, but I was getting texts about Fish. I was at um, it's a Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga movie, A Star is Born that night, and I came out of the movie, Oh yes, and my phone had exploded, basically, because they jammed out Mercury and our Twitter account lit up. Um, I like that comparison to Fall 18. I think, th- as I'm thinking about it just from a jamming-style standpoint, I feel like this is the kid brother to Summer 2015, which is a lot of praise. I realize that, hmm. but I just think, like, all right, the ethereal, breezy jamming that we got throughout summer 2015 the full band jamming the fact that summer 2015 it feels like they're taking this next step in democratic jamming they're all fully on the same page they're all lined together obviously it's tough to compare an eight show run that goes over two weekends to a run that sustains that level of greatness for three four weeks and some of the best shows of 3.0 were played that summer plus magnaball you have a lot you know, this is the kid brother to that. I think it it felt um, it also felt like the, you know, the yin to the yang of fall twenty twenty one, where it just it's it's a breezier. I've actually I've heard from some social media gadflies who also believe this is the successor to summer twenty fifteen. Interesting. So you're not alone in that. Yeah. Last question before we dive into a little bit more about summer or spring twenty twenty three. Just kind of in general, because one of the big themes of this tour is that there's a lot of jamming. How do you think that deep jamming affects Fish's overall playing? I think it makes it better, and they wouldn't do the deep jamming if they didn't think that they had something going on. I think that the deep jamming means that 
They almost have to think about, Trey has to think less about what the set list is going to be. He has to think less about, okay, do I play? What's the use here? Do I have to put something here? Do I have to do a bust out? Um, even in terms of dexterity, I may have mentioned this in the last Beyond the Pond. Like I don't know if there was anything in the way of arthritis or sore fingers or whatever, but just in terms of fretboard dexterity flying up and down the Mixolydian scale, it seems like Trey was really the loosest that he's been in a long time in terms of nailing compositions, in terms of uh, just smoothness and fleet a finger like yeah. I listened to enough fish to know the difference that when he's got no pain even at the age of 43 I find sometimes my fingers the guitar whether I've had too much salt or sodium the night before too many french fries and fingers a little sticky can't quite fret like I once did but yeah I don't know what's going on exactly but I thought that I definitely felt that in terms of speed and fleet-footedness and nailing compositions. This is the best trade has been in quite a long time. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I think, you know, from a deep jamming standpoint, from a band tightness standpoint, I, I'm thinking a lot about, um, just because I'm watching a ton of the NBA playoffs, the idea of, yeah. of a really good team being on versus a really good team being off and what that looks like on the court. And when a really good team is on, the plays just flow and the passes just get tossed around the court and the shots go in from anywhere and circus shots happen, but it's all based around really well-executed fundamental basketball. But there's this ephemeral nature to playing basketball where you can be doing the fundamentals and the pass just gets inter intercepted or another player just like misses a shot or misses a rebound or misses an open look or gets a dumb foul. And I think about it with fish that like some of it we just can't explain. And some of it just has to be that, like, they got out to Seattle. They were all kind of individually feeling really good. It was probably really good to see each other again. This little mini special tour, their 40th year. And they just kind of walked on stage, played really well. And it just kind of one thing led to another. You know, I don't necessarily think that they, like, and I don't think you do either, but I don't necessarily think that they, like, no. spent all of February and March practicing and being like, we got to have a great tour. Like, a lot of it is just what happens and sometimes summer 2022 wasn't my favorite tour and i think that it was just kind of a vibe thing it wasn't necessarily that they like stopped practicing versus they started practicing here but it is weird because you're right like which is your way of basically saying that there's no explanation for max drews and there's uh, none and duncan robinson there's none. and caleb martin fuck being this good there's none there's none, <laughs> there's none. i don't know what there's to no say. reason the heat should be this good you know what you and josh Jimmy Butler, fine, but yeah. You and Josh have Gabe Vincent shouldn't be this good. Have your 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 understandable issues with the Miami Heat. My my issue is they have fucking Jimmy Butler and I got Zach Levine. Jesus Christ. Anyway, I mm. digress. But um I think it's ultimately, you know, from the from midway through set one in Seattle, we all had the same conversation. Um you know, we were all making the same remarks. Trey just He's he's really light right now. He's he's hitting his notes. He's 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 doing what he needs to do. And it just it, it spilled over into the tour. Um a little bit more on this tour. Um so we the two jams we want to focus on from a musical standpoint of the uh April nineteenth, 
uh, from Berkeley, Set Your Soul Free, and the April 23rd Cities from the Hollywood Bowl. Um, before we dive into February 2003, Dave, give me one or two of your overall themes from this larger run uh, and, and, and one or two of your big takeaways. Let's, let's dive in that way. Well, I think overall theme is that the technology is working, which is to say it seems like Trey is finally completely comfortable with his 4.0 rig, the balance of pure Ibanez tube screaming rock to the primordial ooze of effects that I think it's finally, he's gotten the balance right. I mean, there would even be some parts in 2021, which we love, where we're like, all right, we're hearing the heavy Jedi primordial ooze effect. We get it. You can stop. And now it seems like while he still does that, it's kind of used more sparingly. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, so especially with the Set Your Soul Free, this being one of the few fish songs, I think, on balance kind of works better with tab just because you've got the horns and the backup singers and you have it's kind of the beat is very kind of like a Russ Lawton almost like Marshall thing going on to it but when Fish plays it you don't have the backup singers and the horns but you often get to some very interesting jams and this version in particular gets very dark it gets into the primordial ooze it's like there's like the last five minutes or so, you're down in the muck, and then you hear a paid synthesizer that's like the tractor beam pulling onto the alien spaceship. And I feel as many alien spaceship jams as a fish wants to do, let them do them. But this is kind of an example of, um, I think it even had a bit of a mind left body jam mm-hmm, in the middle mm-hmm, of it. Mm-hmm. You get the composition, a little bit of the mind left body jamming to the primordial ooze with the light of uh, the synthesizers kind of pulling you upwards. And it's just probably, to me, the best example of really getting deep with the Pink Floyd-esque effects, probably since the version is simple from uh, August 2021 from Atlanta that we totally. very much love and have talked about before. So it's a good uh, a balance between the ethereal and the demonic. Yeah, and I get you. You get the ethereal in that that cities from Hollywood Bowl. I was just listening to that before we went to record, and I was doing some yard work outside, and it's just this like, it's this really breezy, spacious, subtle jam, kind of similar to the Beneath the Sea of Stars from the Greek. It just showcases this dexterity with this band because you can go from one end, the Greek Fuego, the Greek Set Your Soul Free, to the Greek Beneath the Sea of Stars the Greek, the uh, Hollywood Bowl cities, and you hear this spectrum of fish that you get that diversity in jamming when things like the technology are working, when the band is really focused uh, and, and, and really like in the pocket with each other. I think also from a structural standpoint, this really showcased the proper way to approach an eight to 10 show run. And that's to say, do not fear repeats, fear repeats. Uh, you guys play as many originals and weird bust outs as you want. But this tour is richer because it has repeats. And the fact that repeats came, I feel like, fairly early. I feel like it was in the Hollywood Bowl first night that we got a repeat and was like, okay, things are just back on the table. Perhaps it happened the last night of uh, the Greek. I can't recall the exact moment, but it was very clear that like this band was not thinking 
immediately that they needed to repeat songs. There were multiple frees, multiple Choctaw tortures, especially Choctaw torture. The two Choctaws on tour, both are phenomenal. Yeah. Like both. Yeah. Plus the Choctaws in Mexico, also phenomenal. Also That's amazing. become, yeah, one of the few songs that whenever it goes beyond 10 minutes, there's a reason for it. There's... But that, even that's a really good point. Yeah, that that would that is just a song that they're you know they've been doing it for a decade now, but they're just they're able to just tap into brilliance whenever they play it. But it gets me thinking about MSG because they're playing this you know seven show run I believe at MSG this upcoming summer, and the idea of that run not having repeats, I would love that. I would love for the band to um, really really uh, or excuse me to have repeats to really approach that as though yeah. it's like multiple runs in, in or multiple shows and various tours where they don't need to Brie Baker's dozenize it. Give us a couple tweezers. Give us a couple of diseases. See what those sound like early in the run versus later in the run. Yeah, I would have no issue if there were multiple jam vehicles played more than once at that. Um, with regards to the April 23rd cities, at the risk of hyperbole and pissing off 1.0ers, <laughs> when I, I hear the April 23rd cities... Takes you back to the Nassau. Nah, the Nassau roses are free. I I cannot disagree with that. That is that is something you have not said to me yet. I'm <laughs> shocked that you're just revealing this hot take before I have time to prepare for it. But my God, that is uh, yeah, that's spot on. I was thinking about that. Like the back half of the roses are free. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. If I was on the treadmill at the gym yesterday, and I'm like, oh wow, this is like the same type of. I'm on a life raft, adrift on the seas, and John Fishner's just going every which way. Yeah, it kind of felt like the NASA Roses. And if you want a John Fishner appreciation, the last five minutes of that jam, he's basically Jackson Pollock with a pair of drumsticks, just kind of going every which way. It shouldn't make sense, but it does. It works somehow. It's amazing. And, and his yeah. interplay with Trey throughout this tour was just stunning. Um, what was your favorite show from this overall tour? Um, other than Berkeley night one, because we've got the Berkeley night one division, probably the last show, uh, I think April 23rd, 2023 from Hollywood bowl, utterly phenomenal first set with that cities. um, Taste in the first set, kind of a rarity at this point, really good. That set closes with about to run. And then the second set has an incredible Mr. Completely in it. Just, I talk about that night and the second set in particular had tempos I kind of associate with the Grateful Dead 1983. <laughs> peppy, peppy, peppy. And it's just, they, they came to play. They put a huge, I mean, set two. Mr. Completely crashing very fast to a very fast song. I heard the ocean sing back in Mr. Completely. And then a Wolfman's brother and Ruby Waves. And Ruby Waves being the Tony Gwynn of 3.0, 4.0, and that it never, ever doesn't hit. And just, uh, yeah, probably top to bottom, I think that was my favorite show in terms of the first set and the second set. But on a tour like this, you're kind of splitting hairs. Yeah, I, we, we talked about this in our, our thread with our buddy Josh Carver. Shout out to you, Josh. I know you're listening. Thank you for listening. Let us know what you think about the episode uh, in our text thread. How about it? Um, 
we were talking a couple weeks ago that like there were just there were no bad shows played on this tour. There were no shows that like I outright no. would never want to listen to again or your segments I wouldn't want to listen to. Um, I, I go with the night before you went with uh, April 22nd. This is, you know, the first set is insane from a set listing standpoint. I'm just going to read it. Ghost, Bowie, Esther, Hood, Meat, Melt, Leaves, The Squirming Coil. Shout out to our buddy, Ryan Rosillo, who was at his first fish show in 25 years this night. And he went in being like- my buddy? <laughs> went in being like, I might go, I might leave at set break. And then every song that was played, he was like, these are all the songs I fell in love with fish for. Shout out to you, Ryan. Uh, set two- Amazing. That's an amazing melt, too. Amazing melt. Split open melt's phenomenal. Oh, my God. Phenomenal. Uh, amazing chalk dust in set two. Really good twist. Outstanding 2001. Just banging Sneak and Sally. One of the best set listing calls of the entire tour was when they came out of 2001 and went right into Sally. Uh, good back on the train, even though I don't really understand why back on the train is now being played late in second sets. It worked. It's okay. Life Beyond the Dream. Beautiful ballad. First tube. Just awesome, awesome, awesome second set. Um, Antelope. Antelope Encore. Encore. Very, very classic stuff. So, you know, overall, I think this tour was just so high quality that, yeah, you're right. You were splitting hairs. But that was my favorite uh, show of the overall tour. We both really liked Hollywood Bowl, and that's coming off the heels of an excellent Berkeley run. Um, I know from a jamming standpoint, the tweezer simple, that's it. But aside from that, what was your favorite jam of the overall tour? Probably the Chocolate's Torture for April 22nd. It's a good one. It's a really good one. Yeah. Mine was... Uh, That's other than the ones that we... Other than the 419, Set Your Soul Free, and 423 Cities, next in line would be that Chocolate's Torture. Yeah, that's great. My My... Tops were the the 419 Set Your Soul Free, the 414 Wave of Hope, 418 Fuego, 421 Disease, and the 423 Cities. Those are those are my top five of the tour. Um, outstanding stuff though overall. I, I did a full I've got a full like jam of the year ranking going for 2023, and I already have like 35 jams of this year. It's just an outstanding year of fish to kick off their 40th year. And I can't wait to hear what they have coming for us. Um, uh, when we, when we see them again in, in July, but seeing as it's their 40th year, that means that 20 years earlier was their 20th year, which was the first really big anniversary that they celebrated. They, they unknowingly celebrated their 15th anniversary on the wrong date on 10-30-98. As far as I can tell, there wasn't a ton of mention about their anniversary in 1993. They were not touring in the fall and early winter. Um, but I've never heard a show where they're like, hey, we've been together for 10 years. I don't think they were really thinking on that level at that point in time. 20 years ago, though, they were celebrating their 20th anniversary in 2003. And it was the first time that it felt like Fish was becoming a classic rock band. And so we wanted to talk just briefly about the winter 2003 tour because we heard in our minds some similarities between these two tours from a jamming standpoint, but also thematically. Dave, what were kind of your big themes and big takeaways of this tour as we listened back to a few jams and sets from it? February 20, uh, 2003, for me, that was, that was a show me tour. I mean, Fish is coming off the hiatus. I mean, they played the New Year's Eve show at, at, um, at MSG. But, I mean, the winter, 
2003 is basically Fish's way of saying, yeah, you forgot about us. We can still do this. We can still do this well and do it interestingly. And there's um, some very fascinating shows in winter 2003. I think they knew it was the anniversary year. It was two things. It was an anniversary year, and it was also the first full year back from hiatus. So they had a little bit of something to prove, a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. And, I mean, they've made no secret of this being their 40th year. Like, on, you know, on, like, Twitter and Instagram, they have the hashtag Fish40. So a spring tour isn't something that they've usually done as of late. Yeah. Even the spring tour for 2022, that wasn't planned. That was just the makeup from uh, the COVID cancellation for MSG. So it was kind of like, all right, here's our 40th year. Let's gift the West Coast some shows and show everyone that we still got it. Kind of a show me tour in the same way that uh, that winter 2003 was. But it wouldn't matter if they weren't both quality. And uh, outside of a handful of obvious clunkers, I think February 2003 is a pretty high quality tour, top to bottom. Yeah, I think it, it, it showcases the challenges and thrills of the return. Like there was so much excitement right. about the band coming back for the first time since October 2000. But you definitely hear you hear a new style of fish. Um, I, I often think that this tour is like the most Americana sounding fish because there's so much blues. There's some jazz in there. Mm. It just it feels like a band that is tapped into kind of the underbelly of Americana music over the last 40, 50 years at that point in time. But you hear as a result of that, these huge highs, you know, two of the jams that we want to focus on here are the seven below from February 20th and the bathtub gin from February 28th, two of the strongest jams I'd argue from the overall tour. But also around that you get, you're starting to hear a band that is, um, casting aside, uh, practice and tightness in favor of jamming. And they're letting the music in a lot of ways speak for themselves. These guys are all in their mid to late thirties at this point in time. They are in some cases dealing with, um, you know, addiction issues and and challenges on a, on a, on a personal front. Um, but they are also, still very inspired and still very locked in and physically still very gifted in the abilities to play very fast and very connected and very tight. And so you get this kind of like ebb and flow and push and pull. And, um, I think it's, you know, it's one thing that's fascinating to me about this tour also is like they would come on stage and they just wouldn't even say a word and they would just dive into the music. And so the aspect of fish that you expect now, which is kind of elderly statesman, Paige greets you, Trey greets you, Trey tells a joke, Fishman has something to say in between songs, there's a little bit more humor, and then they dive back into the music. You didn't get any of that. You just got like dark, funk acid jazz, garage sludge, psych dream rock, all these things kind of combined fish in a way that like I saw my first show on this tour. It was a very heady experience. It was not what I expected from this <laughs> joyful, humorous, kind of zany rock band fish that I'd loved for the last two years. It was a totally new side to this band at that point. I wonder if that's awesome, maybe from some of the recordings, especially some of the odd tapes on 2003, kind of have like a really hazy, covered in weed smoke arena feel to them. Yeah. At least the ones, I mean, the odd tips, I mean, obviously this whole tour was the first to be like entirely captured in soundboard on Live Fish. But also, we talked about this in the past, 
Fishman is obsessed with his like Wuhan China boy symbol. That is that is the sound of 2003. Yeah. Fishman like throws in every jam just a the uh, set the seven below or the uh, sense and subtle sounds from 7:30. The cross-eyed and painless from 7:29. Oh, right. But it all starts here in this winter tour where you hear it all everywhere. Um, I- I'm curious, like you know, the two jams that we're highlighting here: the seven below, the bathtub gin. You know, these jams from a sonic standpoint, the seven below kind of showcases the the fact that funk and groove is still a part of fish. It's a very groovy, subtle kind of middle of the night woozy type of jam. It goes into some start stop jamming before ultimately going back into seven below the bathtub gin sounds very jazzy to me. It sounds like it's, it's kind of sultry played in a basement. Um, these two jams come from two very different shows, 220 and 228. These are probably the two most revered shows of the winter tour and two of the most reviewed revered shows of 2.0 why do you think that we love these shows 20 years later i don't think that 220 was revered as much at first it's kind of it's got a it's got a much darker hue to it than 228 228 is just all rainbows but whereas 220 I mean, the first set has that, uh, what the last two songs are both like taken together. It's like 40 minutes. Yeah. It's like Gata Jabu and Simple. Simple goes to some dark, dark places. I think we actually talked about that not too long ago in a few episodes of the show. Um, a tweezer in that second set, at, sometimes it sounds like they're flushing a toilet on stage. But I think 220 kind of captured more of like the darker like you say, more sultry, more, um, that's the kind of show I think that when you're at, you probably appreciate it more after the fact yeah. because of the level of like darkness in that show with the seven below kind of being a sultry dark groove, kind of hinting at funk without ever really going there. I don't really think it ever goes so much type two is kind of with the type 1.5 that we often talk about, but in retrospect, it has some incredible jams. And really kind of showcases the huge 20-minute excursions that could pop up in either the first or second set in 2.0. But, I mean, 22803, that's like, that's arguably like a top 25 show in their history. All time. All that's, time. You've got the Destiny, you got the Destiny Breakout. You have one of the greatest tweezers ever committed to wax. You've got a huge Bowie. You've got the huge bathtub in the first set. Soul Shakedown Party. I mean, that show is just... It's insane. Love and light. Vibrating with love and light. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Both of those shows were were received very differently. The 220 show was my very first show, and I remember jumping on Fantasy Tour the next morning and just kind of being like, I don't know what I saw last night. Like, was it good? And yeah. there was a lot of hate. There was a lot of just like, they're sloppy. They're too dark. All they want to do is jam. Trey just wants to hang on his effects pedals. And I kind of, you know, walked away being like, I don't know if I saw a very good first show. And I, I didn't feel like I saw a very good show for a while as, you know, just seeing them in 2.0. It kind of clouded my overall experience. And then I remember six years later, summer 2009, being on Fantasy Tour still, and they weren't jamming at all. 
And right around like June 2009, you started to see people be like, hey, has anyone ever listened to 22003? The whole show is a jam. And it just became like, <laughs> it spread like wildfire. And um, I remember hearing it in a different light, you know, a couple of years later and just like experiencing it differently. And um, it seemed like the whole community was taken in a, in, a, in a different way as well. Whereas Nassau, I mean, I remember following that show. The, the, the set lists were coming through online. I would dial up internet. I had to press refresh every five minutes to check the next song. And every song that started was just, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that they're playing this right now. So two very, very different shows, but two shows that um, I think showcase, along with 730, um, 2003, one of our favorite shows, the It Tour, or the It Festival, I should say, and um, the SPAC run from the following summer, that's kind of where you see like the peak of, 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 of 2.0 in a lot of ways. Um, the two shows that preceded NASA are also very good. Uh, Worcester's very Worcester nice, yeah. In, in Philadelphia. Worcester had that great gimmick where they open with you enjoy myself and then everyone gets to play a song from their side project. Was it- Philadelphia had a really cool like, was this like Lowrider Jam in the second set. Thing. That was Worcester, but Philadelphia had um, a really good theme from the bottom, uh, uh, extended, kind oh, of right. jammed out, slave to the traffic light, uh, big walls of the cave. Cool show. Um, last question for you here before we jump into some music. We're, two year, we're 20 years on from 2.0. 2.0 was very controversial in the moment. It resulted in the end of Fish as we knew it. They came back and they kind of didn't embrace the jamming for about four or five years in an in a extremely heavy way. And now we have tours like spring 2023 where the jamming happens almost at will and it's just magical when it happens. How do you hear 2.0 Fish impacting their career in the two decades since? 2.0, all these years on, is still such an outlier. Like no... Other year of fish quite sounds like that. I mean, every year of fish kind of sounds unique unto itself. But in terms of jamming style, in terms of song lengths, in terms of how they were structuring set lists, in terms of songs coming in and out from like round room and the round room sessions, nothing is like 2.0. I mean, you could have an entire podcast just completely dissecting fish 2.0 and it would take you five seasons and you still would get it right. So I just think in terms of impacting... <laughs> In terms of impact in their career, maybe it gives them something to look back on and say, hey, do you remember the time when we played Divided Sky for 20 minutes in San Francisco? Or, hey, you know, what about the time when we played like Sense and Subtle Sounds for 35 minutes and did like a Dylan cover in the same set that we never played again? Because fuck it, why not? Or what about the ballad Friday that could be about like somebody drowning in water and gets all droney and the fact that we actually thought that was a good song for like some period of time. It's, uh, you know, 2.0 is, uh, it's a treasure box that just keeps going and going and giving. And I go into the live fish and look at it and I say, what the fuck is this? Like they thought this was a good idea. And the next night it'll be incredible. So, like they thought it was a great idea to play for with BB King on a stage in New Jersey for an hour. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like a great idea at the time. No. No, it's not. But I I I digress. Back to your question, how has it impacted their career? It's they could look back on it and say, you know, 
were very capable of getting to the dark side, very capable of doing these long-form, interesting, abstract Jackson Pollock jams on stage for multiple minutes at a time. So in terms of kind of giving them a benchmark to look back on in 20 years and say, wow, that was an interesting point in our lives, that's, to me, is the lasting impact of Fish 2.0. An interesting time in their lives, maybe not the best time in their lives. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think that it's the outlier I was just thinking as you were talking, it's it's like the equivalent of U2's Zuropa and Pop. Hmm. Where it's like, right. it's an acquired taste for a lot of listeners because it doesn't sound anything like Fish. Zuropa, Pop doesn't sound anything like U2. Especially Pop is like really messy and is, is from a similarly uh, decadent period in the bands in U2's career where they just kind of let themselves go and they, they embrace the party around them. And you kind of get that from fish in 2.0. It kind of reminds me of like ditch trilogy era Neil in the sense that it's just, they're, yeah. they're letting things yeah. go. And, and that's a good thing. You know, all rock bands kind of historically needed to go through that. I'm glad that the band survived and I'm glad that the band has been able to grow past it. I think that more than anything, 20 years on 2.0 has given them their perspective and it's shown them Mm. that when things get out of balance, really, really bad shit can happen. And so as a result, they've worked really hard to be in control while allowing for freedom to take over and dominate as much as possible in the intervening years since, and especially since the fuck your face show and the Dick's 2012 run, the last 11 years have really showcased a band that has been able to dive into that darkness, but know when to pull out and how to pull out of it. Because if they pull out of it and go back towards the light and back towards the things that keep them happy and healthy and safe, that darkness is there for them to play around with. Whereas in 2.0, that darkness was all-consuming. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think getting their lives in order offstage, really, obviously, for important reasons of health and longevity, have contributed to where we are now. Versus 2.0, I don't know any of the band members personally, obviously, but kind of just like from what's been said, what's been theorized, that there was trouble in paradise. There was, but... um... Thankfully, I think, the, I think them breaking up in August 2004 was, in hindsight, one of the best decisions that they could have made. I'm thankful that we have 2.0. It's some of my favorite fish to listen to. It's some of my favorite fish to dive into. But I'm also happy that they were able to get things together and worked as hard as they did to get to a point where something like spring 2023 could happen. All right. On that note, let's listen to a bit of a mashup here. We've got some portions of the February 20 at 7 Below into the February 28, 2003 bathtub gin, commented by the April 19, 2023 Set Yourself, Set Your Soul Free, and the April 23, 2023 Cities. We're going to hear portions of that right now. Thank you. 
you guys enjoyed those deep, deep zones of psychedelic, abstract, exploratory fish. So we were thinking, as we were prepping this episode, what best complements the music of February 2003 and April 2023? And we kept circling, you know, two of us, alongside of our very good buddy, Josh Carver, we keep sending each other the same records that we just are loving. And they're all rooted in the sprawling, still evolving world of jazz. And so we figured we would dedicate the second half of this episode to those records that have really inspired us. And as we took stock of it, a lot of these records are increasingly rising higher and higher on our year-end list, starting around 2019-2020. And so we wanted to focus on our favorite three jazz records of the 2020s so far. But before we do that, we have to set context, and there have to be honorable mentions here, guys. Okay, We can't just do six albums for you. There's going to be honorable mentions, so you're going to have to deal with it. But before we do that, we do have to set context. Dave, I credit you in a lot of cases with introducing me to a ton of fundamental jazz records. I think it was in episode two of Beyond the Pond when we focused on the 112197 ACDC bag where you featured Miles Davis's In a Silent Way. And I'll be the first to admit it was the first time I ever listened to that record and it blew my little brain apart and it has since cracked open the door on so many different records and so many different artists over the last 60 years, 70 years I've listened to and gotten so much out of. But I'm curious for you, what is your relationship with jazz and, and where are you at with, you know, the indefinable genre in a lot of cases that has defined American music for the last century or so? Well, I find, to be perfectly honest, I have to fight laziness. Like the whole point of this podcast is for fish fans to not be lazy and listen to other music. So I have to fight my laziness and not listen to my jazz records from the 50s, from the 60s, and the 70s. Because there's new and incredible jazz records coming out every day, many of which happen to be coming out from London. Everyone's talking about the incredible burgeoning London jazz scene, mm-hmm. which we'll talk a, a little bit about coming up. But, I mean, for me, I think my jazz listening really stepped up during the pandemic when I found myself indoors for large periods of time and not wanting to hear heavy rock music with lyrics, just wanted to hear something I could zone out to, something, I hesitate to use the word pleasant, but sort of like the level of complexity I'm looking for without guitars necessarily, uh, without words. I know I certainly bought a ton of jazz records on Bandcamp during the start of the pandemic, I think through the months of, I want to say March 2020 through July 2020. I was buying stuff left and right on Bandcamp, thinking that that was my way of kind of contributing to the music industry and my favorite artists, many of who happen to be jazz artists. So I think... In terms of keeping up with jazz in the 2020s, we happen to have a lot of good friends, other people that I trust. also want to give a shout out to um, 
a column on stereo gum called Ugly Beauty. It's written by a guy named Phil Freeman of uh, the Burning Ambulance blog. He often puts out like a monthly column that has a really lots of excellent jazz records in it. He's got great taste. I tend to tend to look there. Whatever I see, if it sounds good, I'll just listen to it. Um, I used to read Downbeat Magazine in high school, but I don't anymore because I don't have access to it like I did in my high school library. But I would say that the relationship is, um, lately I've definitely been pushing myself to listen to more and more jazz that's come out in uh, the 21st century, and I'm certainly happier for it. Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm in a similar place. I mean, I, I didn't have the I, I didn't grow up with either my parents listening to it. I didn't I didn't play in like brass band past um fourth or fifth grade. So like I didn't have this like period in my life, aside from like music history class that would touch on it for a little bit, but the point of that class was always to get to rock and roll and always to get to, you know, Elvis and the Beatles. And, you know, aside from like watching Ken Burns's jazz documentary from more of a historical standpoint, I didn't dive into jazz really until the late 2010s. And I felt in a lot of cases it was, I just didn't have the context you know, I didn't have like the story and I need like the story to understand where to begin. And I knew a few of the big artists, but I didn't totally like dive into it. And it was around 2019, uh, the album from the band Reservoir, another London uh, group, put out an excellent album in 2019 that I listened to a lot, was very high up on my list. Similar to you during the pandemic, um, came across a lot of records on Bandcamp that just showed me that there were a lot of this is kind of a dumb realization, but whatever. It's it's the realization. There were a lot of artists who were channeling the vibes from 80 years earlier, still active and still keeping that music alive and fresh nowadays. And, and it's the style of music that doesn't get a ton of press anymore. So you kind of think that it's lost to an arcane period. And it blew me away that there were so many artists just dedicated to the world of jazz and not just like standards, but really jamming and really, really exploring different time signatures and different keys and different tones and different vibes and doing it in a way that did not sound anything like rock music, did not have the verse chorus verse structure. And, you know, for me, um, it just kind of went from there. And then I started doing my homework and, and going back to, you know, do full artist re-listens throughout 2020, 2021. But I always found like winter was when I listened to the most jazz. And this year I'm finding myself, it's really all I want to listen to other than goose and fish <laughs> and eggy. Like it's, it's if I'm not listening in like a jam band, like tour following setting, I'm throwing on my jazz records. And it's funny, like I'm going to talk about this record here in a second, but you mentioned buying a bunch of these records on Bandcamp throughout 2020 and collecting a lot of different artists. I just discovered that one of the artists I'm going to talk about put out volume two of their volume one release uh, in late 2022, just bought it on Bandcamp. So shout out to music purchases. Shout, shout out to uh, Bandcamp and what they supply and shout out to this music that is, um, you know, it would, this is the type of music I feel like would make Terrence Fletcher from Whiplash very happy. He was so afraid of jazz dying. He was so afraid of people just being told that they did a good job and that they could just make music that was fake and soulless, but no jazz music lives on. So this would not be beyond the pond and this would not be a beyond the pond list if we did not have honorable mentions to accompany 
uh, our top three lists. We're not going to go into too much detail here, but we will post these records in our show notes. So if you want to reference them, these are the records that almost made our list that we have been listening to that we really, really love. And we recommend all of you listen to. So without further ado, we got the next three, James Schroeder, Mesa Bowie, Jeff Parker, Sweet from Max Brown, Bad, Bad, Not Good, Talk, Memory, John Dwyer of the OCs with an excellent jazz record, Witch Egg, Floating Points and Pharaoh Sanders, Promises, big record from early 2021, and uh, Natural Information Society, Since Time is Gravity, their most recent record, one of my favorite records of this year. Uh, and then Elvin Jones's revival, which is a set of music from 1966 in New York. Elvin Jones played drums for John Coltrane for a while. This was recorded right after Coltrane passed away. And the, the musicians wanted to channel the energy of John Coltrane's life in this album or in this set. It's freaking amazing. Some of my favorite stuff that I've listened to in uh, recent years. What else we got, Dave? We got Sam Gendel, Blue Blue. It came out not too long ago. Very good record. Alan Arison, Dave Harrington, and Kenny Wallison invite your eye. Desiron Douglas and Brandy Younger, Force Majeure. Big pandemic record for me. Love that album. Love listening love listening to that before I went to sleep often. James Brandon Lewis, Eye of Eye. VJ Iyer, Uneasy. And The Comet is Coming, Hyperdimensional Expansion Beam. Of course, the commonest coming being one of Shabaka Hutching, saxophone player, who's like 17 or so bands. That's one of the cooler ones. Yeah, that is like the forward-looking style of jazz. That It sounds like it was made in a laboratory, but it feels like a jazz record. It's fucking wild. Um, so yeah, we recommend you guys all check out those records. Um and, if you can, and where you can buy those records because these are definitely artists that they, they don't get the press, they don't get the marketing that they deserve for the the passion they're playing with, the talent they're playing with. Definitely check those out. Um, Dave, what is your first record that you want to recommend from what is one of your top three jazz records of the 2020s? So I'm going to start with the record that I bought during the pandemic, listened to quite often during the pandemic. I have memories of... Uh, my whole family just sitting in our living room at 9.30 in the morning with this album on because that's what you did in the, that time of year. You kind of just like sat in the floor and you kind of looked at yourself dumbfounded. This is a record by a London musician, saxophone player named Nubia Garcia. The album is called Source. It features Nubia Garcia uh, doing compositions and band leading and playing saxophone has Joe Armand Jones on piano, Daniel Kasman upright bass, and Sam Jones on drums. This is a very vibrant record. Very light, buoyant jazz and hard bop. Um, also has some elements of dub and Caribbean music. And oddly, and also kind of excellently, it reminds me of Steely Dan's Asia at times, especially uh, the part yeah. of the title track, Asia, with the drum solo and the saxophone solo going crazy. Um, as I said before, I'll always associate this out with the early days of the pandemic. Since then, she's had some remix records. She was also recently featured uh, with a bunch of other London jazz musicians on an excellent album called London Brew, which is kind of a reimagining of Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. It sounds kind of cheesy, 
but you listen to it and realize that it's anything but. Yes. That being said, we're yeah, we're still waiting for the uh, official follow-up to Source, which I want to say came out, I want to say, I think May of 2020, but that's a fantastic jazz record that I keep going back to from a, a young musician who shows a lot of promise, so... Yeah, I listened to this last night just to recall it, and um, I don't think I'd listened to it as much since the pandemic. How you know, since we were really in the pandemic, this is gonna be a record I'm gonna listen to all summer. The the brightness, the 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 energy, the Steely Dan quality to it. You're absolutely right about that. Love that album. Um, so my first record that I'm gonna talk about here is uh, this is one of my favorite pandemic purchases. Uh, Bandcamp Fridays through the through the pandemic. Um, this is. Daniel Carter, Matthew Shipp, William Parker, Gerald Cleaver's Welcome Adventure Volume 1. And this is the album I bought. I just bought Volume 2. I had no idea that this came out in late 2022. So I can't wait to dig into that after we finish recording here. Um, this is... I didn't know that either. Really? Yeah, I was. That's, a, that's volume two. I was just wow. I was just searching Bandcamp okay. uh, for for the you know uh, breakdown of the album, and it came up with two options for Welcome Adventure. I was like, holy shit, there's another. So I just bought that. Um, so these four musicians, Ship Parker, uh, Cleaver, and uh, Carter, have been playing together for decades. Um, but they this was the first record that they released. These are New York uh, musicians that have been playing together in the early 70s, mid 80s. Um, and it is just an, a wild, exploratory, um, uh, psych jazz record. But it's it's very, very shiny on the brass. You know, this isn't um, this isn't like 70s Miles, which has a lot of electrified elements. This is all, you know, acoustic, rich instrumentation, but just played with so much adventurousness, so much excitement, so much exploratory uh, uh, inspiration. It feels like you're constantly on the move, but it's got a groove to it. Um, it's the type of music I can put on during dinner. It's the type of music I can put on when I'm reading. It's the type of music that I can put on um, when I need something to just like light up my brain. It's a really versatile record. It works in a lot of different areas. Sometimes doesn't require too much of your focus. Other times you want to just like dive in headlong into what's going on between the musicians. Just an amazing album. One of my favorite records I've listened to um, over the last three years and just a huge, huge pandemic record for me. This was one that just kind of cracked the code and I started doing, you know, artists off of these artists to just start to figure out where jazz is at and where it's been at for the last 40 or 50 years. Um, amazing, amazing stuff. I highly recommend everyone out there checking this out. I know that this was a record you were listening to a lot as well. Yeah. As you could tell my excitement of there being a volume two, finally, <laughs> I love this record. I listened to it a heck of a lot of the times, like you were saying during the pandemic. Um, I've seen William Parker and Matthew Shipp perform before. I think I've seen them together by themselves. And also, well, you go to Tango. I think um, they might have contributed to the Summer Sun album as well as just having played with them on stage in various incarnations. So, yeah, that's a great record. So the next one that I'm going to discuss, this is one of those bands that you say, is it jazz? I'm not sure. I'm calling it jazz for the purposes of this exercise. This is a band, or almost like a concept, called $75 Bill. At its core, this is two individuals. There's uh, Che Chen on guitar, kind of an interesting modal droney guitar, and Rick Brown 
on percussion. Percussion, by which I mean a crate. He literally sits on a crate and beats the hell out of it, sometimes with his hands, sometimes what looks like a gigantic dinosaur bone, but it's kind of minimal in the most way possible, in the best way possible. And so this album is called Live at Tubby's. It was recorded in March, I want to say March 7th of 2020 in uh, the venue Tubby's in Kingston, up in the Hudson Valley in Kingston, New York. It's kind of uh, the Hudson Valley equivalent of the venue Union Pool that we have down here in, uh, in Brooklyn, in the sense that I think it only holds like 80 people. It's got a restaurant attached to it, and it kind of really catered to uh, the Indie Jam set quite a bit. So in this instance, $75 bill the core. They're supplemented by, uh, there's, I think, more than one drummer. There's a saxophone. There's a bass player, and it's called the $75 bill Little Big Band. And they specialize in drone, a very rhythmic drone. And this was actually recorded, like I said, right before COVID took over. And if your thing happens to be long drones and hypnotic rhythms with a very modal guitar playing and the constant thwacking of a crate, <laughs> you will dig these guys. It's one of the few bands that my wife actually likes quite a bit. I think we saw them open for Yola Tango, I think I want to say 2018 during one of their Hanukkah runs mm -hmm. where they actually brought out the little big band, um, saxophone, I think Sue Gardner on bass, uh, um, some extra percussionists. And it really, it was phenomenal. And they did a few really good sit-ins as well. There's a version of the Yola Tango song, Barnaby Hardly Working from that night with Che Chen contributing his guitar, and it's just fucking awesome. So, yeah, this is a band I would recommend you check out. I think Live at Tubby's, for me, is probably the best representation of their live sound. And um, just as an aside, this is actually recorded by a guy named Jake Lyons, who actually records a ton of indie jam stuff at Tubby's. And for some reason or other, his taper name is like Klykid, like K-L-I-K-E-D. And if you go to um, the Lab Music Archive app and like search that name under tapers, a whole bunch of really cool stuff will come up. So thanks, Jake. And uh, yeah, check out $75 Bill. This is a great show, and the, the droney, the zone aspect to it uh, is extremely appealing and i love that you chose it for this because it kind of showcases like you know jazz music is not tied to one specific area and the evolution of it is in you know rhythm and it is in drone and it is in uh expansive communication and exploration and this album just like has that all this is one of those this reminds me listening to it of 2019 2020 when we were listening to Indie Jam nonstop, and there were so many exciting shows and so many exciting bands, and this felt like a peak moment. And then COVID happened, and, um, you know, it, it had a lot of impact on that overall scene uh, in a lot of cases. But this this record really sounds like a place and a time to me at this point. Yeah, on the record, you could hear the saxophone player ask for a ride up to Catskill, yes. which is like 40 minutes away. <laughs> and someone says, yeah. She's like, amazing. This is a time when you could share a car with somebody right. before you had to wear a mask and avoid your fellow humans, you know? Right, right. So. <laughs> Great record. Um, 
so I want to talk about, I'm cheating here a little bit, but I think you guys are going to allow me to, um, I want to talk about a volume one and volume two release from a group that I have just become obsessed with. Uh, they currently their volume two of this, uh, from this band is my number four album of 2023. Just to give you a sense of how much I'm loving them. This is of course the marriage between two of the finest exponents of the London jazz scene, Tamar Osborne and Al McSween, along with two members of the, or three members, excuse me, of the celebrated, much celebrated Danish psychedelic underground scene, Jonas Monk, Jacob Scott, and Martin Rood. This is the London Odense Ensemble. What is the London Odense Ensemble, you ask? This is Brian Brinkman's favorite music. This is fusion of Alice Coltrane, Pharaoh Sanders, Miles Davis, early 70s, late 60s, electric, jazz, psychedelic, just headiness. This is everything that I want to hear. I absolutely love these records. The, the, the volume one came out in 2022. It ended up in my top 20 of the year. Volume two, as I noted, this is my current number four album of 2023. I absolutely love this music. I turn it on and I get completely lost in it, but I'm also like fully present because the, the, the vibes, the sounds, the, you know, in one sense you get this kind of like mystical, uh, Indian Eastern, uh, like far East Asian type of vibe to it. And in another sense, you get the brass and you get the, 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 you know, the, the, the excellent, like, um, uh, tiny little club in, in, in London, uh, jazz bar, and you get that all mixed together in a way that is just total magic to me. So I'm kind of losing my train of thought talking about it because I'm so excited talking about this, these two records. I just, I, I want all of you out there, stop what you're doing, listen to these albums. I think that they will change your life in a specific way. I'm absolutely in love with this stuff. And uh, I think it will just like open a portal into your brain that you will not be able to climb out of because it is so, so freaking good. Yeah, those albums are cool as fuck. I get a lot of can mm-hmm. too from the London. There's like some kraut, kraut rock aspects to it as well. That's the other, yeah. yeah, you're totally right. There's There's so much in there that is just like directly at my brain. I think those albums came out on um, the venerable label called El Pereso, which also is responsible for, um, I think, they put out uh, like Papier, the um, Adina Gardens, some other really good like psychedelic jazz. But that's, uh, yeah, those are excellent records. So the last one I'm going to talk about here is probably the three I've mentioned, the most, uh, I guess the most, you could say traditional sounding, despite also being the most recent. This is uh, from a young up-and-coming piano player named Isaiah J. Thompson. The album is called The Power of the Spirit, featuring uh, Isaiah J. Thompson on piano, uh, Julian Lee on saxophone, Philip Norris on double bass, and there's seven songs with two different drummers. One of them is uh, T.J. Reddick, another guy named Domo Branch. So... I think this is his third record. He's had two prior records, mostly comprised of covers, but this is his first album of all original music. Um, 
he's definitely in the hard bop style. You get a lot of like, uh, I guess, if a piano player, almost like a Cedar Walton in like the late 60s. Hard bop original is recorded live at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Um, he's only 28 years old. He's a Juilliard graduate. This is kind of like a very classic, stately sounding jazz record. Mm-hmm. It sounds elegant. Like, this is the kind of thing that you would listen to when you're out to a very nice dinner in the background, think to yourself, wow, this is like very good, solid jazz music. I should listen to more of this when I'm at home. What it doesn't exactly break a new ground, it just does very well and kind of showcases a, you know, a 28-year-old kid up on the rise. This is actually, I had spoken earlier about um, Stereo Gum, the Phil Freeman column, Ugly Beauty, and I think I actually discovered this album from that column. So that's... Uh, it's a good one. It's worth checking out. Yeah, I'm right there with you. This is this is not breaking new ground, but it doesn't have to. It's so alive. It's so filled with just like an absolute tightness, but also like an ability for, uh, you know, there's not like a looseness to it, but there there's a sense of um, there's there's a lot of feel, and so you you're hearing music that sounds classic. It sounds like it's from the mid 1950s but it also isn't so uptight in trying to recreate that sound. It feels like it's owning it, that sound itself. It's, it's amazing. I listened to this uh, as well uh, this evening as I was cooking dinner, and um, it just it's, it's very durable music. It's very adaptable, and uh, highly, highly recommend it. Um, the last album that I'm going to talk about here is Jeff Parker's Monday Night's at the Einfield Tennis Academy, which is a shout out to David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, one of the best books I have ever read. And if you've read that, you know what it's like to go on a marathon with literature and it's probably one of the best books that you've ever read. Um, and if you've got a problem with that book, I don't necessarily want to hear it. That's just kind of one of my it's like a third rail for me. You can, you can, you can take your issue with David Foster Wallace, and you can talk about it elsewhere. Um, I got to page four fifty, and I stopped. But that's on me. I enjoyed it. I should have kept going. I will someday. It's funny because I found that the first like two hundred and fifty pages of that book were incredibly tiring, difficult to get through, and then. Something happens around like 250, 260. I forget the exact page, but you th- there's a ton of contextual information revealed to you. And from there, I felt the book like just was a breeze for the last 700 pages. So I'm surprised you cut off around like 450, but it's a long fucking book. I get it. I understand. You're, you're, you're a busy man. Um, but postmodern doorstop. <laughs> but. Getting back to this, um, this, this album came out in late October, 2022. Um, it's only available on Bandcamp. You have to purchase it to listen to the full record. I cannot recommend enough. It's some of the best $10 that you will spend on music. This is Jeff Parker, Josh Johnson, Anna Buttress, and, uh, Jay Belarose. This was recorded across three Mondays, uh, three in 2019 or two in 2019, one in 2021 at LA's Highland park bar, the ETA. Uh, this is a small jazz bar with just enough space in the back for all four musicians. And all of these songs are over 18 minutes long. There are four tracks throughout this record, 
two from 7 8 2019, one from 5 19 2019, and one from 4 28 2021. And you really get a sense of this band that is fully connected on either end of the pandemic and really showcasing their uh, communication, their dexterity. Because it's Jeff Parker, it has a little bit more of a kind of a glossy industrial type sound to the jazz, but it, it, it also has traditional elements of jazz in the same way that uh, like Welcome Adventure was, where it, it feels like a jazz record ultimately. But, you know, you've got drums, you got bass, you got sax, as well as electric guitar. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit more of a rock side of jazz than, than just pure jazz. But it's amazing. These are four extended cut jams that I have gone back to and I've listened to over and over and over again. Shout out to our buddy Josh Carver, who has now been mentioned probably for the 15th time this episode. He loved this album. I think this was this was in his top five of 2022, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very cool record. Yeah, it's very cool. <laughs> it's you you love cool. this. It's uh, out of all of the Jeff Parker outside of Tortoise albums that exist, it's by far my favorite. I would agree. I love the sweet. I love sweet for Max Brown in um, twenty twenty. I believe that came out. But this one has. Yeah. This one just kind of takes his 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 approach to music to a completely different level. I absolutely love this record. What was the one he put out more recently? It was like him and he looped himself, and it was. Uh, was it Four Folk? Yeah, it was just like a straight guitar uh, yeah, record. Yeah, whatever right? it was. Yeah, I couldn't get into it. I tried. Yeah, it was a little bit more um, stripped down. Uh, the whole focus was his guitar. I like him with a little bit more musician uh, musicians backing him. Sweet for Max Brown's cool because it has like hip-hop elements to it, but it also has rock elements to it, but it also has jazz elements to it. But this record, Mondays at the Einfield Tennis Academy, this is a full-on psychedelic but kind of muted jazz record and you can imagine stumbling into the ETA on a Monday night kind of being a little empty because it's Monday evening but Jeff Parker and this trio musicians step to the stage and they just kind of like take your brain away for about two or three hours and it's a, it's a good vibe to consider absolutely I think probably the best thing we could do at this point is kind of listen to a quick mashup of these records that we have discussed and then we'll come back and send you
All right. Well, I hope you all enjoyed a dive into 2023 and 2003, as well as our discussion of our top three jazz records of the 2020s so far. I know this is some of my favorite music that we've talked about on any BTP. This was just, this was fully us just diving into our favorite zones, and I, I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, so you've been very lucky. You've gotten two episodes in about two weeks from us. Um, we are going spoiled, to, spoiled. Seriously, um, we're going to be back in July, uh, probably early July, before Fish Tour with another episode. Um, we'll probably talk through our favorite albums of 2023 to that point in time. Keep an eye out for that, as well as some additional topics that we are still mulling over. But um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Please, if you're out there and you want to hear us dive into a topic of your choosing, send us an email at beyondthepondpodcast at gmail.com. Give us a couple ideas. Give us uh, some insight into your thoughts on the show as we've come back, as well as uh, give us a question. We'll we'll talk about it for about 10 minutes. Absolutely, we will. Hope that you have uh, enjoyed this episode of us talking about Fish's excellent spring tour, about some of the more excellent recent jazz albums that we've talked about, and everything in between. What I mean, the good thing about the spring tour to me is that it passes the gym test, as in, as I have things that... I want to listen to at the gym that are going to make me want to do heavy cardio and run up a mountain and hopefully lose weight at some point. It does. Lots of stuff like that. So if I can listen to it at the gym, it's good stuff. So on that note, come back with us in July. If you, uh, Like Brian said, if you really miss us and get lonely, send us some fan mail. We'll uh, talk about it on the air. And uh, we'll hold hands. We'll say kumbaya. Together we will go beyond the pond.